Welcome to Brazen Education with Educator Barnes, a podcast with a focus on speaking your truth, being transparent to help others, and having no shame about it. Because we can't move forward until the truth is known. And this evening, I have a wonderful guest, Aaliyah Jones. She is the librarian and she's a PhD student. Aaliyah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. Well, yes. So I have to tell everyone how I ended up um, initially connecting with Aaliyah. So some years ago, as many of you guys know, I was an elementary librarian and I had an elementary license, but hadn't done the job until like way after being an English teacher. So I was on Twitter one day and someone had a librarian follow train. So Aaliyah was in that follow train. So I followed her and she was just dropping all these gems. So I was following her, following her for years and years, secretly fangirling all the things she was saying just about um, being a librarian, the field of library work, um, her opinions on books. Um, when she was doing book reviews and just her work with recognizing different books. So it was super, super important to me uh, when I was thinking about expanding the topics I was talking about that I definitely get the library um, into this conversation when it comes um, to education and it comes to the community. So Aaliyah, let's get into it. How did you find the path of uh, being a librarian? Well, first of all, I mean, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Goodness, for all that love, I really can feel it. Um, it was it was a super windy, you know, route, just like life usually is. Um, first, I was a teacher for a little bit, like you, working with kids, and then I started book selling. So I was like, okay, I know I like kids, I know I like books, but book selling, as much as I liked it, just wasn't making any money. <laughs> um, and then I realized, you know, why don't I try the library? And so in 2017, I applied to work for the Cincinnati Public Library and I got a job and I just kind of hit the ground running from there. So very much just thrown in there and ready to try new things. So it's kind of how I, my, my very windy path to libraries. So um, I don't know how much our viewers know about the library, but in the library, there's different sections, there's different yeah. specialties. So can you talk to us a little bit about kind of what your what was your bag when you were in the library? What was like your specialty area? And I also know you work in the library now, which is a little bit different than probably what you were doing in the Cincinnati library. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, every library is different, but most public libraries around the country are structured pretty much the same way. There are different departments for different needs, um, like genealogy and local history, information and reference, history departments. Um, and in Cincinnati, the department that I eventually ended up being in was a children's department. Um, I'll also say that I worked, while I worked for the public library in Cincinnati, I worked for three different branches. So I got a really diverse perspective of library work and also the communities within Cincinnati. I'm born and raised from Cincinnati. Um, so I kind of, when you're in a branch, you kind of have to do everything, you know, right? Because it's a smaller ecosystem. You have to um, work with patrons, you're behind the desk, you're in front of the desk, you're helping people with their tech issues. 
Um, but usually when you kind of move to a larger or centralized location, which is what I ended up doing, it's more centralized and focused. So I ended up working, kind of splitting my time between the children's department in the main library and the teen department. So I would be at both desks going back and forth when I work for public libraries. Yeah. And how is that different? Because if I'm correct right now, you're in academia in that space with the library. So how does that different because um, I know you are a PhD student. I just completed my um, doctorate in education a couple of weekends ago. So thank you. And I know like the the library people, you guys are our friends because we are always trying to find research or you get into the database and you're searching for stuff. It's like, where's this book? I need this book. Um, so talk to us a little bit about what you do on the academia side, because that's a little bit, well, in my mind, a little bit different than our public libraries. Yes. Uh, once again, congrats. We need to talk about that. <laughs> but um, yeah, they're similar and different. It's still about that customer-based experience, right? Um, it's just that the customers are a little bit different in academia sometimes. <laughs> There's still a lot of uh, similarities, really. So yeah, now I'm currently, I just started a PhD program. Um, I now live in Wisconsin at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I don't, though I don't currently work in the libraries here, before I came here, I did work at the University of Cincinnati's uh, libraries for a little bit. So I would say some of the differences are that Patron questions, patron needs are a little more different in an academic library. As you said, you know, usually working with students or faculty, there's more of a connection between the library staff needing to help the direct needs of academic faculty. Um, sometimes working directly with them on projects to help them get the resources, books, materials that they need. Um, in public libraries, it's a little more, bit more like you can get just about everything. Um, so yeah, similarities and also differences. So in the library, a lot of people, if they don't interact with the space, they think it's just about books. And I know you and I know that's not true. So when you are talking to people about the library, what do you wish people knew? Because I feel like libraries in some communities are going away. Um, you can't, I remember as a kid, I felt like the library was close enough that I could walk there or get there. And now places are closing down libraries because they don't seem to think they're important, but there's other things that there's other needs that the library meets. Um, so uh, what are you, some of your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's tough. Funding is always a challenge for public libraries across the country, you know, how do you um, fight to show that libraries still matter? And they do. And I think there's a bit of a disconnect in some cases between what people think libraries do and what we really do. Um, just a bit of an outdated understanding, not a misunderstanding. Um, but yeah, I think mostly when people say like, okay, oh, you know, people still read. Yeah, <laughs> lots of people would. Lots of people and kids still read and love and connect to books, but the library has definitely evolved over time, right, to suit the needs of the communities and patrons that use it. That's the whole point of a library. So a lot of things that people might not know about libraries are that 
Um, for example, I looked up the Indy Public Library because <laughs> I, I just was curious about like what the services are. So this can be more tailored towards indie people. Um, you all have a lot of cool stuff that is going on in your public libraries. Like you have a seed library. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people don't even know that you can get seeds coming up for spring and summer for very like practical needs. There's career services information. Um, back in Cincinnati, our public library, I tell people a lot of what I did on a daily basis, um, especially when I was working in very predominantly Black communities, um, is helping people get the resources they need sent to like um, job and family services. We have free scanning so people could send in documents that they needed to get in quickly for whatever resources they needed. Free printing, of course, access to computers and equipment that maybe you can't afford. Um, I think you all have a really cool makerspace kind of space. Mm -hmm. So the library is giving people access to materials, not just books that maybe you know you can't afford or don't normally get to use every day. Um, there's also, of course, book clubs and discussions. Um, you all have a lot of really cool, just like the space is cool your um, Black Cultural Center within your central library. I have been to your central library. It's gorgeous. Yes. And that space is special. Like I just, it is a special space. You walk in, you feel at home. So that in and of itself is a gift. So whenever people ask about like what resources can they use from the public library, I say one, go. Find mm -hmm. your local branch or step into the central library if you have one. And two, go on the website. Just from browsing through the website, I got a very quick understanding of all the all the things you can do. There's also you can rent a meeting room. Not a lot of people know that. You think you got to go have your birthday party or something <laughs> at a restaurant? You could have it in the library. You can do that. And and lastly, I'll say one that like always gets people like, oh my god, you know, we're streaming right a lot these days and reading ebooks and things. Don't pay Audible. <laughs> you can use. Check your library, but usually most large library systems these days work with a company called Overdrive, and they have an app called Libby, and you mm -hmm. can literally use your library card, which is free, to log into this app to access free audiobooks, free ebooks, comics, magazines, all of your library card, and you can also stream videos on some of these. So there's just so many the the possibilities are just so endless when you have a connection to your library. And I really appreciate that you talked about the Libby app because I love the Libby app because like Audible is so expensive in my mind. Sometimes if I just want to have it for myself, I'll buy my audio books through Chirp, which um, I'm on their email and they send me cheap books. Like every single day they send like five books they have marked down, um, which like sometimes a book will be like $5 for that day. And it'll be decent authors. Like a couple, can't remember the title book a couple of weeks ago, like a Jacqueline Woodson book. So I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, I want that audio book. But mm -hmm. most of the times I use the Libby app because audio books can get really, really expensive. And I'm a person that wants either a physical copy of a book mm -hmm. or the ebook, and I want to hear the book because 
There are a lot of really good voice actors that really bring the text to life. And so I want to hear, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but the um, Tristan Strong series by um, Kwame Mbalia. Yes. The guy that does the voices on those audios is phenomenal. Really? Like, he was really, really good. So my, I, we actually listened to that whole series as a family. Um, yeah. All the different characters, Gum Baby, John Henry, yeah. Trump, it just really brought it to life. And then right mm. now, I I like Star Trek, but I haven't seen like the beginning stuff. So mm -hmm. I went to the library and I'm renting um, the DVDs for yep. Star Trek because yep. I don't want to pay for whatever Paramount streaming service because we had a whole family meeting. We're going to cut off the stream and stuff because we had <laughs> I mean, we had everything. We had Hulu, we had Disney Plus, yes. we had Netflix, and we started looking at the bill. It's like, man, this is about the same as cable. We got to cut exactly. some of this stuff down. So well, here's the thing: it's about access, and right. and when you tell people, all of a sudden they're like, "Oh my gosh, I didn't even know," you know, because like the only thing, the only thing is you have to be patient, right? <laughs> because this is true. This is true. Because if you go to the library to get DVDs of your favorite TV shows or movies, you might not be able to get it right away. And you might not be able to get all the seasons, right? So you're going to have to be a little patient. And when you're using like all these streaming audios, it might be a long wait, you know, because lots of people want to use the resources too, you know, but like you were saying about voice, I'm glad you brought that up because I personally, now that I'm a student um, and my life is, is literally just always reading academic articles <laughs> and, and writing academic texts, uh, an escape for me has been listening to audiobooks. I didn't used to listen to a lot of audio um, growing up or like in mm -hmm. my undergrad, but I discovered it during a pandemic because I was like, you know what? I have time. I like listening. I love storytelling. I've always loved storytelling. And like you said, the quality is so high of people performing these stories. Yes. So like returning to like this culture of oral tradition, right? Letting ourselves be told a story and enjoying it. So check out audiobooks, y'all. Yes, yes. So free promo for any audio mm -hmm. people because I, I, I absolutely love it. And um, that kind of leads me to my next area because you are a PhD student. I know um, your focus areas are the areas you folks really want to dive deep into is Black Studies, Indigenous Studies. So can you tell us a little bit about like, how did you get interested in um, this particular um, topic and what experiences have you had that led you to be interested in these topics? Yeah, um, overall, I have always, especially when I started becoming a bookseller, I was just drawn to making sure we can see ourselves. Mm -hmm. I saw part of my job of working in my uh, bookstore, which was like in a very white community, but we got a good amount of people of color and different experiences, was helping parents and grandparents and kids when they came into my store into the children's department, they could see themselves on the shelves. So over time, I realized that that was important to me to make sure, especially people of color, children of color know that they are in these stories and that they can find them. So it's one thing to know, right? It's another thing to be able to access these mm -hmm. stories. And that's crucial. Um, so I was drawn, and also just as a lifelong reader of children's lit and just good books, my parents made sure that I had black books around me growing up as a kid. And I'm very grateful for that. And I still have a lot of those books. I'll show them later. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've always 
been drawn to Black children's literature. And also more recently in the last, I say 15, 20 years, Indigenous children's lit and culture. So they're both extremely important to me. And also it's important too, because uh, Native children's lit is very low represented in the whole canon of children's lit compared to other, especially white representation in children's literature. There are lots of stats out there, especially mm -hmm. from the Cooperative Children's Book Center, which is located at my school, UW-Madison, about the stats and the current state of what diversity is like in children's lit, right? And it's not great. It's getting better. Organizations like We Need Diverse Books have really helped make a boost. Yeah. But we're not where we need to be, right? So for me, as I was being a bookseller, as I was getting into being in libraries, I started blogging. I started thinking about um, being able to show people some of these great stories because of that access, right? And so therefore I realized this is kind of what I think I wanna do. I care and I'm passionate about helping children see themselves and access these stories. Um, especially Black and Native kids. So how do I do that? Um, so that has kind of led me <laughs> on this journey to um, being grateful to being able to be a grad student right now at the school. And what are some things you keep in mind when you're picking books? Um, there's a school, so I do consulting work where I go in and partner with schools. And one of the schools asked me, could I look at the books they had for Thanksgiving? Because mm. they... We're trying to be more culturally um, knowledgeable and be responsive. Yeah. And for me, I said, there are two things I need. A, I can do this for you this time. But the second mm -hmm. thing is I want to give you guys a spreadsheet to explain to you why I made the decisions I made. Because the next time you need to actually do this. Because yes. you can keep hiring someone else to do that. But you want to learn how to do it. And one of the things I noticed about, so they had a, a wide variety of books. Yeah. Um, Oh, it was interesting, um, the attempts to have diversity. When I was looking at some of the books, it's like, this is a made up tribe. You, they yep. never mentioned the indigenous tribe. Mm -hmm. There is just like a, a amalgamation of all these different things. And so one of the things I had pointed out to um, this, these particular teachers were to make sure that when you have books about indigenous people, not the tribe is clear. What the message is, is clear. And it's not like a stereotypical um, thing. Yep. But I'm sure you probably have some more uh, more tips when it comes to really identifying and cultivating that library of appropriate books um, for people because there's representation and then there's like misrepresentation yeah. while you're trying to have representation. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you're, I mean, just doing that work too, because it is important, you know. Um, I think I have very mixed feelings because like, I feel yeah. like we're in this era of, you know, EDI, right? Equity, yeah. diversity, and inclusion. So people, some people are, are genuinely trying to be better. And then there's people who are trying to check off this box, right? Um, but this work is so nuanced and it has to be so, it has to be done at a very local level and a very intentional mm -hmm. level. Um, because like you said, Yes, you can be intentional about trying to get books that are about Thanksgiving that are inclusive and thoughtful and good, but you really have to do the work. And doing the work is finding resources that help you understand what you're looking at. Um, so there are people, bloggers, for example, Dr. Debbie Reese, who gives 
examples and goes through books and says, this is why this representation is harmful or this is why this representation is good, right? But one thing to keep in mind when you're selecting a book, especially about Native peoples, is that it is important to see the present tense used because Native people are still here. Indigenous people are still here in the United States, on Turtle Island, around the world, right? So that's number one. And two, it's really important um, when you're selecting these titles to look at who's writing. <laughs> I think that's part of the rush and people trying to find good content is that they're just more concerned with getting the books, right? They're not really taking time to vet the books because there have been lots of really problematic, like very problematic books published about the Thanksgiving holiday, uh, which is considered a day of mourning for a lot of East Coast tribes, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of problematic stuff that's still in people's collections. That's still in people's, um, not only collections, but it's like in storage. So they'll pull them out. Like a lot of libraries have like seasonal displays in the back, right? Yeah, so they'll just literally just boop, take a look, boop, put them out on display instead of actually looking at the content. So you want to look and see that a Native author wrote it. Ideally, a Native author also illustrated it, right? So that's true for really any books by Native authors. You want that authenticity, but it's not just authenticity. It's that story, that person who has that lived experience. And wouldn't you want children to read from those kind of stories instead of just you know, very stereotypical or very harmful representation. Because, you know, especially for Black and Native people, our images have been put into media for hundreds of years in very negative and racist ways. So why would you want to continue perpetuating that when you don't have to, right? No, I really love that um, there's more to the work because there are people that I do think that their heart is right. But mm -hmm. your heart being right doesn't excuse you from malintent. Yes. Um, so you have to like do the work and inform yourself. And sometimes I'll talk to different groups and they're like, well, it's a lot. And I'm like, well, my lived experience is a lot. <laughs> like the right. least you could do is go read about it, learn about it, yeah. and try not to put things out here that are harmful. And even to your comment about the seasonal displays, it's also updating those displays because yes. a lot of times I know I've been a teacher, so I know it's very easy just to pull out that tub. Right. <laughs> but right. then it's like, man, I really should. Oh, this mm -hmm. was written in the 1980s. We were using some yeah. problematic language then. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes. Oh, that was my favorite book in my childhood because a lot of times when I talk to people about books, yeah. like books are personal. Like yeah. they feel like personally attacked because, mm -hmm. oh, my grandmother got me this book. I know, and my I mom know. read it to I me know. and my teacher had it. And I'm like, that's great. You can still love the book, but you have to think mm -hmm. about now you're in front of children. You mm -hmm. are in the library. You're in a community. Exactly. This is a narrative that we want to keep, um, continue. And I think is a constant interrogation because even for myself, I didn't want to grab a book because a black author wrote it or a native author wrote it. I want to know that the story is actually really yes, good. Um, yes. It's engaging. It has the message and it's, it brings something different. And, a, and another thing I tell people when it comes to illustration, mm -hmm. if I can change the skin color of the kids you have illustrated or whoever your people are, and yes. it, it's just a white person, but you know, now change them brown, like, that's why it's important to have representation right. in illustrated right. because sometimes you'll read a book 
you have a native author, you have a black author, but then the illustrators are a person that's not black, that's not native. And then they draw us in stereotypical ways yep. or they'll have diversity in the illustrations. But yeah. all the kids could be the same kid. You just change the yep. skin. Uh, it's that, it's that, I call it like sprinkle diversity on there. Like, psh, psh, you know, like yeah, <laughs> you know, like, is it intentional? Is it real when you're looking? Because as you know, as people, anyone who looks at a picture book, or illustrated book knows it's all about the interplay between text and story, right? Yes. So you can't have to do any of it. I mean, you can, a lot of people do, but you shouldn't have to do any of it, right? It's all important. It's all part of the message making and helping children read images and read text, right? So yeah, like you can't have to do it really if you really want um, to create an honest text, you know, I think. Now, one of the things, uh, and I know probably because you're a PhD student, one of the things that I came across when I was like looking you up and I followed you in that little uh, library train was the read it real good blog that you had. Yeah. Uh, and then it kind of, I'm like, no, honey, I need to write more things because they're really, really good. Tell us about your uh, read it real good blog. Like what inspired you to kind of make this blog? A, I love the, the, the title. It's super catchy. Well, B, I loved how you went about reviewing books. So when you're reviewing books or talking to people about books, what are some things that you try to be intentional about putting in those reviews, like things that you think are important? Because sometimes you're going to review. I'm like, this review told me nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely nothing, except you liked it. I'm like, but why? Why should I like it? So tell us a little bit about that. Well, first of all, I honestly really appreciate the love you give my blog because it's been a project of my heart for many years. You know, when you're writing, you don't know if people are actually reading it for real, you know, and if people are, are touched by the work. So thank you for, for showing that work love. It means a lot. Um, so read it real good dot com. <laughs> check it out um is a blog that i started just out of my heart literally um i started in 2015 i believe when i was a bookseller you know because i realized like i said like there's a lot of really good books and i want people to know about them how do i do that outside of you know my uh nine to five job working mm. in this in this library space and i, I knew i like to write a little bit and so I said, I think I can try this book review thing. And, and my uh, cousin, who is brilliant, um, her name is Robin, uh, Robin Walker Murphy. She's an arts educator in New York. She was like, why don't you like start writing? Like, why don't you start your own blog? So I was like, hmm, why not? <laughs> so I kind of just jumped in. And I just remember those days of the beginning of my blog, um, just being so excited um, of this new world of beautiful world of children's books. And I still to this day say we're in a renaissance. We're in a renaissance mm -hmm. of children's lit, just the quality of books and illustration and writing. So I would take um, just books and just read them during lunch. <laughs> or I would, I'm telling you, I use the public library so much when I was a bookseller because I would just like see a book, get it from the library, take it out and just review them. Mm. And there's, that's why there's so much content on my blog from like 2015 and like 2017, 18. Cause I was just like really, really just delving into this world of reading books and, and reviewing them specifically. So as far as like how I go about reviewing books, um, 
I kind of just figure it out as I go. Um, I'll sit down, I'll look at the illustrations. Like I said earlier, that interplay between text and illustration and how well they're working together, if they're talking to each other, you know, in what ways and how well it's doing it. Um, because I'm an artistic person, I've always been an artist. I've always loved color. That's why I'm drawn to picture books. Like I say on my blog, I'm pretty biased. <laughs> like it's mostly <laughs> picture books. I'm sorry, y'all. People have asked me over the years, can you review more YA? And I'm like, I could. <laughs> but one that requires more time because they're longer <laughs> books. <laughs> but my heart has always been with picture books. So mm -hmm. I really just think about what's the message that they're putting forward, what it is why I want to share this book. Do I think it's exceptional in some way and why? Um, and really just going through page by page. Sometimes it also helps when you're reviewing a book, especially a picture book with illustrations, to just read the text. Like, don't even look at the illustrations. See what the text is doing. I know some people, when they're reviewing picture books, also will just print up the text separately mm. to think about it without the image to kind of get an idea of what's saying, you know? So, yeah, I don't, I don't, I've thought about this before. Like, how do I actually review books? But it's kind of like an individual experience with every single book. I love it. So, I'm assuming that you probably have some book recommendations for us of books to read that you might want to share. And I will tell you, sometimes we have audio listeners. So when you show um, any yeah. books that you have, just make sure you uh, say the title and the okay. author just for anybody that's audio only. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I, I'm sorry that I don't have a lot of new titles, life, being a student, you know. I have so much catching up to do over the summer. <laughs> um, and as you know, it's hard to keep up with all the good books that are coming out. Like, yes. Yes. there's just so many good books. Um, but I brought a couple books to talk about um, that were just in my bookshelf that I felt like could get a little more love um, than that have come out over the last few years. So the first one I brought is called A for Acorn. And it's actually a board book, which is for babies or toddlers. And it's a really small publisher in California. And it is an ABC based on California Indian culture. Mm. So it's very specialized, that very, right? Remember I was talking about that specialized aspect yeah. of indigenous lit um, by native authors and illustrators for everyone, you know? So it's just super cute. Um, you see the illustrations mm. there, culturally specific things. So board book. I love board books. They are underappreciated. <laughs> this is true. People feel like once you are a certain age that you shouldn't have board books, but they're the most sturdy books. Mm -hmm. I still have all my boys, most of their board books in my house because they're sturdy and there's always somebody's child in my house anyway. So <laughs> they're built to last. They're built to yes. last and designed very well. So mm -hmm. people overlook them. Also um, have this book. It's called A Man Called Horse. And it's about this man named John Horse, who is a little, I think he's little known in American history. He is or was an Afro-Indigenous leader of the Seminole tribe. And this is a really cool, short, it's deceptive. It looks longer than it is. It's kind of like a middle grade book with images and wow. pictures. And it tells about how this man um, fought for his people down in Florida. And it's a really cool history book for kids and adults who like history. So super recommend that book. Um, I pulled out this book. You can see my little notes in there. <laughs> it's called The Passing Playbook. 
And it is a YA novel. I do read YA every once in a while. <laughs> and it came out a couple years ago. It's about a trans Black boy who moves to a new school who loves soccer. And just the experiences he has in his new community, making friends. And what I love about this book is it's very personal. Very, um, the writing is very, um, you just feel like you're in there with him going through the experiences mm -hmm. that he's going through. And it's a really sweet teen book. I recommend it. Um, I have a couple more. So picture book. Um, this is one that is just about joy. It's called How Do You Dance? Mm -hmm. And it's just funny and sweet and very light. Um, it's about a boy who, you know, everybody's like dancing around him. And he's like, I don't want to dance. He's just like very insecure. But really, he just does it his own way. You know, like we all do. Sometimes we need time. So I really enjoyed this one. It came out a couple of years ago. Um, this is a bit of a throwback. Um, it's called For Kwan's First Flat Top. And a lot, I think a lot of people know the book Crown. Well, I shouldn't say a lot of people. Beautiful yeah. book called Crown, which is about Black boys' hair, right? We're getting a lot more books about Black girls' hair, but we're also getting more books about Black boys' hair. And I like this one a lot um, because it's also about family and hair and black hair culture. Um, so I really recommend, and it's bilingual, which is even better, yep. in Spanish and English. So check out for Kwan's first flat top. Um, and I wanted to mention um, just a couple books. I won't go on too long. <laughs> oh, oh, we, we love books, so go oh, ahead. Really? Oh, okay, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> so these books are from when I served on the Coretta Scott King Book Awards Committee um, in 2021. So that year, I think it was. And tell us, how, do you, how did you end up being on that committee? Like, that sounds like super awesome. So how did you get there? Once again, life being a windy road. You know, I think um, book awards, serving on book awards is like super... Um, it's hard to say how you get on it. It's more like the work that you're doing, the connections you have, the communities you're a part of. So mm -hmm. as I was starting to really get into books and blogging, um, I was starting to make connections, right? As you know, the education community, the book community, academic community is about um, the relationships you have with people, mm -hmm. especially the real relationships. So I started to get involved with the Credit Scott King Book Award community. And I was appointed to the awards. So I served one year on the committee. And for those who don't know, definitely check out the Coretta Scott King Book Awards. Um, they're on ALA, American Library Association's website. And the cool thing about this award is they've been around for over 30 years now, like more than 30 years. But the point of them, which is important, is to highlight Black books for children right? Ages zero to 18. So there's been a wealth of books that have been awarded. And so I had the privilege to be on this committee recently, somewhat recently. Um, and the year that we analyzed books, so we were sent books for an entire year, all oh, wow. by Black, yes, an entire year, all by Black authors um, who identify as American. But that year was around the anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Mm. 
And so there were a lot of books that were coming out to commemorate it and to also teach children and adults, because a lot of people don't know about it. I definitely didn't know about it until recently, right? Mm -hmm. And as we know, um, that history was purposely shuttered, even to this day in Oklahoma and across the country. So there were lots of books that came out on the topic. And I wanted to show this real quick. This is from the award ceremony um, that we had to honor the books because the book that we chose as the winner um, for both author and illustrator is this book, which is called Unspeakable, The Tulsa Race Massacre by the great Carol Boston Weatherford who has so many amazing books for children. It's just such a rich and thoughtful and emotional writer. And the great um, Floyd Cooper who passed somewhat recently um, a little bit before we were able to celebrate this win with him, who was just also another great of Black children's lit. So this is one, and it just speaks to the power of story, right? As you know, I say picture books are for everybody. They are. Because it's the simplest thing of being able to tell a story through illustration and story and words, right? You can always learn something from a picture book. But in addition to that book, there was this kind of nonfiction, I'd say upper middle grade YA book that came out about the massacre in much more detail for kids and young adults. And oh, it's called, sorry, Blackbirds in the Sky. And then another one that came out um, is this one is called Angel of Greenwood. It is young adult um, fictionalized history of the account of the Greenwood Massacre. So we have, I mean, and that's kind of what children's literature does. It takes our lives, it takes our histories, and it creates it in ways that people connect to in multiple formats. So, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing all those books with us. Um, as you know, uh, right now, books are under attack. Um, people are trying to censor um, books. Um, I recently read a book, um, You Should See Me in a Crown. Um, oh, yeah. um, that author is from Indiana. Um, and I was sharing, yeah, and I was sharing that I read the book and people were like, I can't believe you read that book. And I'm like, I read all types of books. Um, but the issue yeah. was that the main uh, character, uh, I don't want to give away the plot, but yeah. she's exploring her identity. Mm -hmm. um, but I really love the book because they made references to places in Indianapolis. And yeah. so I it was a, one of the first times I really read a book where I like I could see myself mm -hmm. in my city. And yeah. some of the things that she experienced, I experienced as a black girl in mm -hmm. Indiana. So for me, I think sometimes when we're talking about censoring books, um, trying to put librarians in jail, trying to put teachers in jail, trying to remove yeah. things. We're moving, we're removing like so many assets because people are like, oh, I'm, I'm just censoring this. But no, you also censored, you censored the, the, the story of the black girl, the story mm -hmm. of this, this, because that book also talks about the fact 
that her mom and her brother has sickle cell anemia. Mm. And that was one of the first times I really read it in a book in a way where you got the kid's perspective of yeah. what this is like that, you know, my brother can't go to school today. His body is attacking him and the impact to her feeling like she has to be all things to all people everywhere because yeah. I have a sick sibling. And so for me, when I hear people say things like, oh, that book should be censored. I'm like, this book has so much depth. So you're not just censoring the one thing you think you're censoring. You're censoring so many other things. So I, I'm, I'm guessing that this has been a barrier in this work because I, I have experienced barriers. Well, how do you get through it? And what do you have to say about people who want to just say, no, not only that, I do not want my kid to read it. Nobody should read it. Yeah, I will say, first of all, that like, I want to respect the fact that I'm not currently working in libraries, you know, so I'm very much in the silo of academia. And there are people and friends who are dealing with this right now, you know, who are working actively in public and academic libraries, pushing through like these very difficult times. Um, as we know, life is, in my opinion, very cyclical. Um, we have been through this before, unfortunately. You know, this is not new. Um, and I say that to say that we've been through it. Unfortunately, people who stand up for stories, who write stories that are pushing against the narrative that people don't believe deserves to exist, you know, have been doing this work and fighting for a long time. That doesn't mean that the fatigue is not there, you know. And it's difficult because, you know, like I said, I'm seeing friends and family um, just who, who love their job, right? Who love working as librarians and providing access to these stories like the one you read, to these stories that children need, that adults need. Let's, I mean, let's be real. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they're tired. You know, they're tired because they come to work and they don't know who's going to be pushing against them that day. They don't also feel supported. I think that's a point of this story of book banning and censorship that people kind of are not talking about. I think that there's in media, there's a lot of sense, like sensationalization of yes. like the person, the, the parent who goes to the board meeting and stands up and talks about this horrible book, which is a big part of it. But what a lot of people aren't talking about, or maybe they don't realize, is that the call is coming from inside the house, which Ooh. means that mm. Mm. a lot of time when it comes to censorship and bans, mm. it's the administrators of that library. It is the board of the library who are not willing, they're not willing to stand up for these texts, for these books, for these authors, for these stories. They would rather fold they would rather say, we're not dealing with that. We're just going to put it away on the shelf. That the stand up for not only the stories, but for the staff who are the frontline workers, right? So a lot of these administrators and board members are not doing the work they need to do. Mm. And mm. I, I don't think enough people are talking about that aspect of it and holding them accountable and asking questions about what are your policies? Are you sticking to those policies? How are we supporting library staff so they're not harassed? You know, so that, that's my thoughts on it. Oh, no, I've, you hit the nail on the head because I even think, because like you said, this is not a new conversation. I remember coming right out of college. I ended up teaching in the suburb of Indy mm -hmm. and I was teaching about the day of mourning. 
Mm-hmm. And and I, I'm a brand new teacher. The next thing I know, I'm in the principal's office because, and this is a 2006, yeah. I was indoctrinating students with an yeah. alternate version of Thanksgiving. Yeah. And and I so my response, being a new teacher, come to my classroom, see what I'm doing, right. you know? And when I get down to the bottom, like who brought this call? I'm like, oh, this is not some random outsider. <laughs> this is like inside of this establishment mm-hmm. where now I don't have anybody that's backing it up. And I'm like, I didn't really tell kids what to think. I, what was interesting, I gave them two articles. On uh, one, well, what, what was an article? We read the speech that was supposed to be read on that anniversary um, when he wasn't allowed to read it. And then I had them read about the pardoning of the turkeys for Thanksgiving. And I asked students, what do you think? What do you wonder about these two situations? Because this too, both of these situations is America. Like, yeah. how do we reconcile that? And I never answered the question for the students. But that parents not in the classroom, not seeing what's happening and not understanding that my job is not to tell them what to think or even my opinion about the topic. My job is to provide various sources to say, here is the evidence. I've taught you how to look at something critically. You have your lived experience. How are you perceiving this? And so for me, that's how I entered like my career. Like Mm -hmm. it was just everything was we read uh, tears of a tiger by sharon draper yeah i was pushing That's a right. narrative and i was like the yeah. te- my mentor teacher had read this book with students for years and she was a white lady and but when i taught it i was trying to give a message and oh the kid was in a car yeah. and they were drinking alcohol i'm like well, they've been reading this book at the school for years like why is it an issue why now? Is a problem yeah to your point of like Mm-hmm. You, don't hear, you hear about the person at the board meeting. You get the clips of them reading one line out of a mm-hmm. whole entire text, but you yeah. don't get the story of the persons um, who's the library or the teachers whose address been posted online, who's yeah. getting started in emails, who is going to work hoping that their boss is going to stand for them. It's like, oh, you need to take that book off the shelf. Oh, you need to shelf that lesson. And mm-hmm. then like that mental fatigue that it wears on you. Yeah. Um, people good people are just like i can't do this anymore like i want to do it and i'm walking away because i can't do it so the burnout is real like as you experience you know there's so much weight that we put on our educators and librarians and and teachers you know and to expect them to not be human when we are subjecting them to this kind of violence, because that's what it is. You know, they're experiencing this violence and then our children are also experiencing it, right? It's a lot of harm, you know, it's a lot of stress and that does so much on your psyche and your spirit, right? And we're and like you said, you're just trying to present the information as you should as a teacher as equally and also as truthfully as possible, right? That's our jobs to tell the truth. We're not here trying to just sanitize. We're trying to share the truth so children can walk away and people can walk away with multiple perspectives. I mean, that I think that's what life is about, right? Being able and being willing and open to share these multiple perspectives on life. Right. And that's and for me, when I was even telling the students, I said, I learned about this in college. I hadn't even heard of the day of mourning in high school. That was something I experienced because when you go to college, you are around different people from different walks of life. And so I'm learning about this and like, oh, 
I never really thought of. Like, you probably don't want to celebrate Thanksgiving and eat turkey and eat cranberry sauce. This actually makes sense. And so I would be very transparent. I mean, it was really as an adult that I learned about Juneteenth. And that celebration and the fact that enslaved black people didn't learn about that the Emancipation Proclamation. I learned that as a grown woman. And so for me, when I'm hearing people censor stories or I can't remember where it was, where they were uh, with Rosa Parks sitting in in, uh, the front of the bus, they essentially took out anything about racism. And I was just like, but that is a critical part of the story. And we're going to things are going to just come back around because we're not having yeah. those conversations. So, well, it's like, we're not having the conversations and we're ignoring the fact of how this country became the way it is. Like right. you literally can't make this stuff up. We live in a settler colonial state. That means something. We live in a settler colonial state that was built on the backs of black people who were enslaved period. So, and therefore, therefore that harm, that violence to multiple communities of people, it doesn't just go away, right? There's no way. We didn't just like zap ourselves at this point, you know? So we can't ignore, we can't not talk about how we have gotten to this point. And also I will say from being a teacher, from working with kids for as long as I have, they are the most resilient people yes yes and they can understand and take so much and there's a way to teach just about everything there is a way to teach just about everything and kids are just so brilliant and compassionate when you present them with the facts and the information and they're so creative you know and we're selling them short adults it's always adults we're selling them short when we don't respect them enough to let them read and learn the truth, you know, I think. Uh, here in Indianapolis, we have the Idle Jordan Museum, which is our yeah. indigenous Native American museum. And in during February, they do like this kind of like Afro-Indigenous kind of mix up. So last year, um, they really focus on black cowboys, but they also mm-hmm. focus on indigenous cowboys. And this year they focus on indigenous hip hop. And mm-hmm. the presenter was um, Dr. Kyle Mays. And there was a Q&A afterwards. Mm-hmm. And someone was like, I'm listening to the music. I'm doing this. And like, what else can I do? And Dr. Mays said, we need to get the lamb back. <laughs> and when I tell you, because it was really interesting, you it was a mixed uh, racial crowd, but like all the black people kind of gave that kind of side, kind of low, like, mm, <laughs> kind of like, and she's like, what do you mean give the lamb back? And he was trying to explain yeah. like the concept of like, this is a cellar place. Yeah. And it was just interesting. And I thought to myself, this is why we need to have these conversations with kids yeah. because this is what happens when adults cannot comprehend. Like I was saying that I understood exactly what he's saying. Like yeah. we're all still in land. Like right. if we're going to really do restoration, it's not listening to indigenous mm-hmm. hip hop. Mm-hmm. It's not donating some money here or there. It's not even having this lecture series. Yeah. It's actually really doing the work of restoration mm-hmm. and healing. Yeah. Um, and, and so I really yeah. appreciate what you said because I feel there's a part of me that feels like Gen Z, Gen Alpha, whatever they're calling what Gen Beta, I don't know what comes after that. I really feel like they're resilient and like this is the opportunity. Like I, I don't feel like the youth are like the leaders of the future. I feel like they are leaders now. And yes. they're 
so many youth that are doing things. I'm like, man, I didn't even have the confidence, the know-how, and look at you. So they're they're doing it and they're doing it together. And I think the important part is that they're talking to each other. I think yeah. that's part of the issue is that, and it's not, it's really not even our faults. I think, you know, living in a settler colonial system that has purposefully siloed us and put us mm -hmm. against each other. That's what white supremacy does, right? You know, it, it, it makes it so that we're not talking to each other and not listening to each other. And so what I also see with Gen Z, all these youngins, <laughs> is that <laughs> they have resources too, maybe that we didn't have, to mm -hmm. have direct conversations with each other about our experiences and overlaps and similarities culturally, you know? Um, so that, yeah, Afro-Indigenous person is not a, whoa, blow my mind right. kind of thing in this day and age because we understand that our communities have always overlapped in many ways, right? So we're having kind of these conversations that time has brought us to, right? And we will continue to have them because of the youth, I think. I agree. Yeah, well, you have been a wonderful guest. And in my mind, I already see you as Dr. Aaliyah Jones. And the reason yeah. I'm saying this to you, when people look back at different shows, because I do um, Ed Gems and I also do another show, um, Brazen Education, which this episode will also appear there as well. Um, mm -hmm. I've had several guests that started calling me Dr. Barnes. And I'm like, I'm still in my program. I'm, I'm not Dr. Barnes yet. <laughs> and one of my guests said to me, says, I'm telling you what will be because mm -hmm. I need you to see it now. So wow. I'm saying to you, you are Dr. Leah Jones because I need you to understand that's what will be. And I want you to start seeing it now. And mm -hmm. that spirit was gifted to me. And I want to pass that gift on to you because mm -hmm. I know you in it. And I and this work can be hard. Um, and you feel yeah. like like when you said I need to read. The number one thing I've been doing right now since I finished is reading books because I have not because everything like you can't read a hundred page article and then go read your book. You just yeah. there's not enough time in the day. So uh, I, I get it. So if you ever like, hey, <laughs> Shante, we can I talk to you? Please, please, uh, please reach out. <laughs> I just want to say that I receive that. I receive it. Um and I'm grateful for that because as you know, as many of us black women academia know, it is not hard. It is hard. It is not easy. Mm -hmm. This has been one of the toughest things I've ever done. But speaking with you today and remembering why I'm doing this work, um, a good friend of mine, Suhei Lugo, who is a newly minted PhD out of Simmons, a brilliant librarian in Boston. Um, we always tell each other when we're going through it, especially when she was going through it, finishing her program, um, why are we doing this? We always say, we do it for the children. And we will remind each other why we're doing this, like why we really are doing this work. And I, I just, that really helped me keep going um, when things are difficult. So um, can I share like a couple more books before we go? Is that okay? Yes, yes, okay. please. Um, you know, I, I love talking about books and I don't get to do it as much as I used to. <laughs> I'm receiving the information about books, so go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I brought just a, in case I was able to do this a couple books because, um, Sankofa is important to me. Mm. Like, mm, thinking back where we came from and always looking back to go forward, right? Like, we're here because our ancestors mm. willed us to be here. 
and they've existed for us to be here. So that's important to remember. And so I can't not look at myself now, as 35-year-old student again, um, without thinking about the reader that I was when I was a child. So I still have a lot of books that I read when I was little. As I mentioned, my parents really um, tried to cultivate a really strong Black bookshelf for me. And so um, I wanted to show, this is one of my all-time favorites. Oh, yep. Right? You see it here like, yeah. <laughs> so that was for me, like I had, I still don't, I don't have my childhood copy. So like I forgot about it. Mm -hmm. And I think I was like in a room, I think it was a, a library conference and Jason Reynolds started reading, like reciting one of the poems. And I was just like, <gasps> You know, because I remembered the power that Eloise Greenfield had on me as a child when reading these poems and this poetry. Um, and then, of course, the artwork from the Dillons, you know, very classic 70s, just yes. very emotional, you know. Yes. Um, and that book was Honey, I Love. Yes. Sorry. Honey, I Love. Amazing. Little little poetry book. Um, the next book is I Need a Lunchbox by Pat Cummings and Jeanette Gaines. And I... I can still remember being a kid um, in elementary school and reading this book and wanting to like design my own lunchbox mm. because of this story of a black boy dreaming about lunchboxes. So thank you to Pat Cummings for, for this image. Um, next, this is a book that I have had for a long time called Jumbo Means Hello, and it's a Swahili alphabet. And it's by the great, like the great Muriel Feelings and Tom Feelings. And this was, my parents were very Afrocentric, but also not so much Afrocentric. They cared about the diaspora, right? Mm -hmm. And so they were very much about making sure we still felt connected in a lot of ways. And so this is one of the ways that they did that by this book about a young girl. Um, yeah, Jumbo means hello. Oh, and, and also want to show you can see my name, Aaliyah. <laughs> Literally, this was my book. <laughs> Um, and I wanted to show a couple, a series that I really love called Messy Bessie from when I was little um, by the great McKissicks, Patricia and Frederick McKissick. I love these books growing up. Mm. This little black girl getting into a mess like me, <laughs> just all over the place. And lastly, I don't know where my parents found these, but they're like literally Kind of like how, you know, these days in, in children's literature, you have all those biographies of great black, yep. great, like this is from the 90s and it was doing that. Mm. And it's just like a collection of, it's called a salute to historic black women, black men, black leaders, scientists. Like I learned about Garrett P. Morgan as a kid oh, because yeah. of this book. So once again, I'm grateful for my parents for knowing one and, and respecting that I was a reader that I was that quiet kid who didn't really socialize very well, but providing me with these books and these mirrors, so. And that's really important. Like parents, whether you're going to the library, whether you're buying books, um, it's really, really important to see yourself. And if you're ever back in Indy, um, I'll definitely have to connect you to uh, Natalie Pipkins. She's been on my show a few times, but she's behind the um, Black World School mobile books uh, bookstore. And so it is a bookstore on wheels and it's all things black. Oh my God. Um, so very wonderful. And I'll actually send you a couple of uh, the two episodes that I did with her. Uh, she is so totally awesome. But during the pandemic, she kind of just had this epiphany of like, 
I want to do this and I'm going to take it on will. So she goes to different places across Indy and sometimes she even leaves Indy. I mean, she'll just have her bus there and you can go and get a book and she changes out stuff. So it'd be, it's different black books on there all the time. So um, I, I get, I get books over there. So, um, so yes, definitely, definitely. I, I think you guys would uh, definitely. Yeah. Click. Thank you. <laughs> I look forward to that. <laughs> well, uh, everybody, that that has been our show today. Um, Doctor Olia Jones is coming. Doctor um, Barnes. Oh my yeah. god, <laughs> she has dropped so many gems just about how libraries are resources, about how to find good books, and how to be really authentic about representation. And we appreciate the time that you have poured into us today because of the book recommendations alone uh, <laughs> was just knowledge that we really needed. And I appreciate that you get get some quote-unquote throwback books because there are some really good books from the 80s and the 90s that are still still good today. Still good, but also we got to remember the roots, you know? People were out here pushing these stories, not having big publisher contracts, writing these books from the heart, self-publishing. That's what people do as people of color, right? We're going to get our stories out there. Yes. And so there's so many good throwback books that we need to look for and, and celebrate and bring back. 